Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com. That's linkedin.com. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Hello, Allison. You're not looking particularly tan. <laughs> I'm really good with sunscreen. I have to say, growing up in Florida, I know the dangers of being without sunscreen. And why are you talking about this, by the way? Because you went to Hawaii. I went to Hawaii. You took the whole fam family to <laughs> Hawaii. That's so great. Yep. In this week's episode, we're joined by Amy Goyer. She's an expert from AARP on how to cope with becoming a primary caregiver for an aging loved one, something that most of us are probably going to have to do in our lives. But first, Robert Brokamp, resident awfulizer, is going to look into whether a recession is on the horizon. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Uh, well, Allison, if you've ever spent any time watching CNBC, you've likely come across Art Cashin commenting on the markets from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Do you know who Art is? You'd recognize him if you saw him. I would. His yes. name is too per- with a name like Art Cashin. There's no way he could like, do anything else but be a CNBC right. commentator. Did you ever heard of that? Like the studies that say your name does dictate somewhat what you'll do. Like people named Dennis are slightly more likely to become dentists. It's true. <laughs> okay. Yeah, people named Lawrence are more likely to become lawyers. As, oh, as in our case, we have one. We have a lawyer, a lawyer, Lawrence. It's true. Anyway, so Art's the director of floor operations for UBS and has been in the business since 1959. So he's been around a while. So early this summer, he pointed out an interesting little bit of history. There's been a recession in every decade since 1850. Now the last recession we had in the U.S. was 2009, so we haven't had one yet this decade. The implication, of course, is that we're due for one. After all, there's only 16 months left until 2020. So I found this all rather intriguing, so I thought I'd do a little bit of exploring to see where this little historical factoid would take me. So first, let's start with what is a recession? A lot of people think it is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. And although that's definitely a sign of trouble, that's not how it's officially designated. A recession has occurred only when the folks at the National Bureau of Economic Research Say so. Really? Okay. That's true. So the NBER, NBER is a private nonprofit research organization made up of 1,400 business and economics professors. And they're the folks who officially designate when recessions begin and when they end. So here's the official definition of a recession from the NBER It's quote, a significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy. Lasting more than a few months, normally visible in real GDP, real income, employment, industrial production, and wholesale retail sales. So, a recession begins just after the economy reaches a peak of activity and ends as the economy reaches its trough. End quote. So, that's the official designation. Now, you can actually go to the NBER website and it has all the data on all the recessions 
since 1857. So that's probably why Art Cashin began his little factoid with since 1850. <laughs> since that period, so over the whatever the 160 so years since then, the U.S. has experienced 33 recessions. On average, recession occurs every 4.9 years and lasts 17.5 months. And sure enough, Cashin is right. There's been at least one in every single decade since 1850. Now, the opposite of a recession is an expansion. And the current one is indeed extraordinary. This summer, it turned nine years old, making it the second longest in history and just a year short of the all-time record. So, does this mean a recession is imminent? Well, there's a saying among economists, and that is, expansions don't die of old age. In other words, time alone isn't what causes an economy to contract. And a 2016 publication from the Federal Reserve of San Francisco seemed to confirm this. It found that unlike humans, whose chances of dying increase every year of living, <laughs> that's not true of an expansion. So with every additional year of an expansion, there's not an increase in the chance of a recession in the following year. Do you know when Australia's last recession was? Why no, bro, I do not. It is 1991. Oh, yeah. Okay. So if they can avoid a recession for almost Surely three decades, we can. why can't we in the U.S.? So who well, knows? Maybe maybe better looking and have <laughs> lovely beaches. And that is true. Probably probably better tans delightful as well. Personalities. Yes. Fun. I haven't met an Australian yet. I didn't like. That's true. That's true. Uh, anyway, so we might be tempted to predict when the next recession will occur. So a current Wall Street Journal survey of economists found a rough consensus that we're safe until 2020. So these folks in general think we're going to make it through this decade, but 2020 looks rough. Unfortunately, history shows that experts aren't so good at forecasting such things. There's a well-known study from the International Monetary Fund that found that economists failed to predict 148 of the 153 recessions from around the globe. <laughs> so we'd love to be able to predict such things, but the history is we're just not very good at it. Now, some might say that right now the economy is humming along just fine, especially given the recent announcement that the economy grew 4.2% in the second quarter, and that we have the current and very low unemployment rate of 3.9%. It certainly doesn't feel like things are slowing down. However, it's important to remember that NBER's definition of a recession includes that part about beginning, quote, just after the economy reaches a peak of activity. So good economic numbers are often the exuberance before the storm, especially if you're looking at something like a lagging indicator, like unemployment. So for example, a recent Bloomberg article cited an analysis that found that of the 10 recessions since 1950, the average time between the low point in unemployment and the start of a recession was just 3.8 months. So actually, a very low unemployment rate doesn't mean that a recession is far off. So the bottom line of all this is that age alone doesn't mean a recession is imminent, but really good economic news doesn't necessarily mean a slowdown is far off. We just don't know when a recession will occur. The question might be for you is, okay, so when it does happen, what will happen to your portfolio? And for this, I turn to an article by Doug Short at Advisor Perspectives, who wrote about this a couple of years ago. Since then, Doug has retired. Um, but he looked at all the recessions since 1929, and he found that with every recession, the stock market has declined, except one time. What was really important was the valuation of the market before the recession started. In the times when the valuation was above average, the stock market dropped about 40%. When valuation was below average, the stock market dropped about 20%, and there was the one time where the stock market actually made money. 
So where are we now? Oy. Well, according to advisor <laughs> perspective statistics, we're just a little short of the most overvalued market. <laughs> I was going to say, I think history. I know the answer. Yes, exactly. And we've been talking no. about that for years, right? So with all this, history certainly suggests that a recession is coming sooner rather than later. Um, and then when it does, the stock market could cut, be cut 40%, maybe 50%. But as Warren Buffett once said, and by the way, when we're recording this, it's on Warren Buffett's birthday. Happy 88th. Happy birthday. He once said, if past history was all that is needed to play the game of money, the richest people would be librarians, end quote. So really the question for you is to ask, can you ride out a 40 to 50% drop in your portfolio? If so, don't try to guess when the recession is going to come. It's going to happen eventually. We just don't know when. If that would change your plans, perhaps your retirement plans, your kids' college savings plans, it's perfectly fine at this point. We've had a good run to put some of that money in cash and bonds. But for your longer-term money, as always, whatever happens to the economy, we know that eventually the stock market recovers and reaches even higher values. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a moment. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's causing a lot of anxiety. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid in certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS ConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. Because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, locations, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Well, how about some statistics? Like, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. And unlike job boards, it's a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. Just how many? Well, here's a statistic. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week, in every industry, even yours and mine. Go to linkedin.com slash fool for $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. We still need me, we still feed me, when I'm 64, when I'm 94. According to AARP, more than 40 million Americans provide some level of care to an adult friend or relative. Caregivers, on average, are 49 years old, which means that they also have jobs and children to tend to. But actually, nearly 1 in 10 are 75 or older, taking care, likely, of their spouse. On average, caregivers have been providing their services for four years, but 24% of them have been doing it for five years or longer. And Caregiving can range from just help with shopping, cleaning, and transportation, all the way to caring for someone who is bedridden. The typical caregiver spends more than 20 hours a week providing wow. for his or her loved one. 
So being a caregiver can be emotionally, physically, and financially challenging. Here to help us with advice on how to best manage these challenges is Amy Goyer, AARP's family and caregiving expert and the author of Juggling Life, Work, and Caregiving. Hello, Amy. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Sure. Welcome to Motley Fool Answers. So let's start with your story. How did you become an expert in caregiving? Uh, well, I've, I've worked in the field of aging for about 35 years. I started my career out as a music therapist. And I worked in adult daycare centers and nursing homes. And then I worked for the Ohio Department of Aging and then for AARP full-time. And, um, and then about nine years ago, I went on my own as a consultant. And at the same time, pretty much that whole time, I was also caregiving. First for my grandparents as a long-distance caregiver. I was in Ohio. They were in Indiana. And then my mom had a stroke when she was only 63. And so then my dad became her primary caregiver. Plus he, they had moved to Arizona and I was still in Ohio and my dad was an only child. So as him caregiving for his parents in South Bend, Indiana, that was tricky, you know, long distance. So I did a lot of the driving over in-person stuff and he managed the finances and those kind of things from a distance. So that evolved over time. Then my mom had the stroke. And so then I had another role of being backup for daddy and going out, you know, later on, he had a hip replacement. So I went out and spent a month and telecommuted and took care of mom and did the the dogs and cooking and all that good stuff. So sometimes those things were temporary kind of things. Um, and then um, over time, my parents started needing more and more help and my dad developed Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And my grandmother had had it too, so we were always worried that would happen. Um, and then on top of that, my sister, my oldest sister, had Cushing's disease, which is kind of a, a rare disease that's a tumor on your pituitary gland that makes your whole body go crazy. So I was sort of, I was her power of attorney. Uh, she had a good ne- local network, she lived over in Maryland. Um, so about nine years ago, I moved from here in Alexandria to uh, Arizona. And I kept my place here because my work is based in D.C., but I basically was in Arizona most of the time and then came back and forth every month. So kind of a crazy life existence there. Mom, my parents moved into a senior community and then three years later moved back in the house with me when they both needed 24-hour care. Because when you think of the costs, and many people don't realize this, they moved into a senior community that was an independent living, but they still had meals and their services, and it's expensive. And then when you start needing continuous care, somebody to really help you, then you're adding on and you're adding on and you're adding on, and there's just not enough money. There wasn't enough money for them both to be in assisted living. And even then, it wouldn't have worked because my dad was at that point where he couldn't be alone for five minutes. Mm. So we always, you know, and I had to work, so I couldn't be there constantly. So by moving in with me, um, we saved some money. We consolidated. I hired a live-in caregiver five days a week to help. And then I did the weekends by myself. Over time, things changed. My mom passed away a year later. Mm. And my sister, who had been living in Ohio, one of my other sisters, moved to uh, Arizona to help with dad and brought her two sons. They lived with us for a year and then the house next door came open for rent. And so they live next door. Wow. And it's been amazing because um, as I mentioned to you all, my dad just passed away Mm -hmm. about a month ago. And it's been... um, it's been a really rough time since then, but I, I'm starting to get to that point where I can look back and evaluate and been so lucky to have had some family support like that. You know, my dad got to a point where he, we couldn't convince him to get out of a chair. Mm. He could do it physically, but he didn't 
understand, didn't want to. And then, you know, it took people, two people to kind of convince him and help him get up. And we could call my nephew to come run over from next door. When you think of the cost of having two people all day, it, it just was prohibitive. There was no way to do that. So, you know, you get very creative with how you do things. And, you know, uh, I, I, I feel really good about the fact that we had Daddy at home. Um, he was walking up until the last two days of his life. He was up and dressed and had a shower and, you know, had quality of life. He lots of music. <laughs> and Lawrence Welk, thank you. And, um, and so I feel really good about that. But And now, you know, since we talk about finances a lot, I'm in the position now where I have, uh, I'm really, it's been very financially crippling for me. Keeping up two places, going back and forth. Um, uh, you know, being self-employed, so no benefits, insurance is expensive, all of those things. And also just getting my dad everything that he needed. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we did some creative things with Alzheimer's, and I think that's part of why he did do so well. He was 94 years old when he died. Mm -hmm. And he had acupuncture, and he had massage once a week, and we had Reiki, and we had, you know, we, we kept him exercising. I had someone who came and, and worked out with him in the water. So those things are all what made the biggest difference in his quality of life and his health and our ability to care for him, but they add costs. And so I absorbed all that. Yeah. No, you have like really on the front lines experience with this. Totally. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, from being a long, I, and, and that's one of the things we talk about is caregivers don't recognize themselves as caregivers. Mm-hmm. So you talked about, you know, you're taking someone to the grocery store. Well, I took my grandmother to the grocery store, she never drove. And I had a a, a caregiving role then. I didn't think of myself as a caregiver. I was just a granddaughter doing what you do. Uh, And then as time goes forward, I had a very different role with my other grandparents um, who needed a lot of help. And then I had a different role with my mom. And even that role with her changed over time to a point where I provided complete personal care, her every need, toileting, bathing, grooming, everything. And the same for my dad. So... You know, we have to realize that you're a caregiver if you're calling your mom every day to check on her, and you're a caregiver if you're if they're living with you and providing personal care. And there's a lot in between. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people hearing your story are thinking of their own parents, their own grandparents, or maybe even their spouse or maybe right. um, siblings, and thinking this could be in my future. Mm-hmm. What should people be doing? before they become a caregiver to get them ready for that possibility. Right. Well, we talk about, I think of it in kind of as five steps. So the first thing is to talk about it, is to have those conversations. And that can be the most daunting part because it's hard for people to think ahead. It's hard to talk about money. It's hard to talk about care because no one wants to face the fact they're going to die someday. And I don't want I didn't want my parents to die either. You know, you don't want that, but it's reality um, and and aging. And you, you, it's hard to predict how we're all going to age. You know, we all want to be, you know, 99 years old and still volunteering and driving. And, you know, right. that's our goal. But it's not going to be the future for everyone. So you have to start with those conversations. And I always say have them early and often. Often because things change. 
your financial situation changes, your needs change, your health changes, your living situation changes, your socialization. You know, my dad had almost no peers left. He was 94 yeah. years old. Yeah. And he was a veteran of the 10th Mountain Division in World War II, and he had been an active member of that veterans group. And there was one member of his group that came to his memorial service. Yeah. And yeah. I was so happy that he had a peer there. Yeah. But that that's all important part of things. So you want to have these conversations and say, what are your wishes? What are your goals? You know, a lot of people, nine out of 10 people want to stay in their homes as their age. Okay, so if that's your goal, what are we going to do to make that possible? Um, it, you know, we want to talk about uh, the financial situation. It's one of the things people don't like to talk about. Right. And yet, you need to understand, do you have long-term care insurance? Is there, you know, what is your thinking as you age? Talking about driving is one of the hardest things. You know, that's our wheels are our independence. So, uh, you know, you can talk about it before, long before it's going to happen. And it's a lot easier to talk about. In In the far future, when, if you can't drive anymore, have you thought about that? Would you rather live somewhere where you can walk every place? Do you want to live in a community that has transportation? Or, you know, is it, you want to stay in your home? Okay, how are we going to deal with that? We're going to learn how to use Uber or Lyft or senior communi- transportation, or we're going to take you to church and the grocery store, whatever it is. And to just start talking about those things and thinking about them, because a lot of times, if, you know, we're talking a lot about our parents, but a lot of times they have thoughts about it, they just haven't told you. You know, so have those conversations um, and, and then kind of come up with a plan. You know, OK, if these are your goals and this is the resources we know we're going to have, what's our framework? And have a basic plan of, you know, where you're going to live, um, your health care, the quality of life issues, what kind of socialization are you going to have? And then look at your um, uh, financial situation. So just a, a basic plan. Now, the plan's going to change. So be aware of that and don't freak out about that because everything, things change. But you have a framework. And so if you go back to the framework, then you, it, it helps you when those crises happen and the changes happen. So a plan is really important. The, the um, uh, other thing is to prepare your team. So nobody can do it alone. I mean, that truly, truly, the thing that I have learned the most in this experience is I can do anything. But I cannot do everything. Right. Yeah. Like I have done things I never, ever <laughs> thought I would do. Believe me. But I, I really can't do everything, and I had to, I had to embrace that and be okay with it because I'm pretty Type A. I pretty much want to get everything <laughs> done, you know. And and you can't. So you have to build a team. So look at family, friends, neighbors, um, your uh, faith community, doctors, paid professionals, volunteers. So it's. It can be a very broad team. One example is that, you know, I've had to do this back and forth thing between Alexandria, Virginia, and Phoenix, Arizona. And my neighbors here in Alexandria, I consider them a huge part of my team because they would mow my grass, they check my mail, they, you know, I, I truly couldn't have done it without that. So that's part of your team. And then you got to have support so that the community agencies learn about what services are available in the community and, and, and put together what that support's going to be, as well as caring for yourself, the caregiver. It's always the last thing people think of. And, you know, you have to really realize that it's not selfish. It's just being practical. You know, my, one of the things that happened to me, this is a true story, I was running on empty. My, my car was running out of gas, and I 
got into the gas station, you know, and you're just hoping, hoping, hoping you make it. And after I filled the car up and I pulled out, I thought, you know, it's interesting. The car actually runs differently with a full tank of gas. And it was just that aha moment, you know, of, oh, I'm expecting myself to run just as efficiently, completely on empty at all times. So that was a turning point for me. And that's the analogy I use in my head. Okay, what am I doing to fill my tank? Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's just little short things. It's five minutes. I'm going to get myself a cup of coffee. I'm going to call a friend, text my boyfriend. I'm, You know, the little things. But then you also have to do bigger things. You have to have that time to... um, like a, a two-hour break, let's say, or or it might be doing something with the person you're caring for. So, Dad and I watched musicals. We loved he loved the musicals. He could he enjoyed the music, and so I picked out ones that I liked too. That was quality of life moment for me. That filled me up a bit. Um, and then you have to take you know more tune-ups, and you have to go for a, a vacation or a retreat or go someplace that fills you up. We used to go to our farm in Ohio, and that that always kind of filled me up, gave me a big fill up. And then you know you have to do the routine maintenance, so you have to um, eat well and exercise and go to the doctor and do your checkups and all of the preventive stuff and sleep. My top priority has always been sleep. Oh, me too. Oh, gosh. If I don't get enough sleep, I go crazy. Right? It totally robs you of your ability to cope. You just cannot. Everything is worse when you're tired, right? Oh, yeah. And I'm a nine hour a night person, so. Oh, I'll take 10. If you're going to give me 10, (laughs) let's make it 10. Let's do 12. Why not? Why not? Can we get a 13? Yeah. No. So those those are kind of the things, you know, the family discussions, preparing your team, making a plan, building support, and then caring for yourself. And we, you know, one of the things about caregivers, you you shared some statistics. There's um, an average of $7,000 a year caregivers spend out of pocket on caregiving. Wow. And that's a, a bulk of it goes to household expenses, paying for your loved one's rent or utilities or house, just stuff in the house. Um, and But also things like um, medical expenses that's the second most common thing um, and you're going to work you're going to spend this money on all food clothing i bought all my dad's clothing medical equipment all of that if you're long distance the average is twelve thousand. Oh wow and if you're caring for someone with dementia it, it all doubles and i can tell you i spent far 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 more than that every year mm-hmm. so it, it really va- it really varies and so it's something to think about not I can't do this because I don't have the money, but how are we going to do this? There are ways to work around that. Part of it, I assume, is what you spend on a pocket, but also being able to access the financial resources of the person you're caring for. What's the best way to do that, particularly as there can be some legal issues? You mentioned power of attorney earlier. Mm-hmm. There could be issues of where you know, you're spending money from your dad's account and the siblings may question those expenses. What's the best way to do that process so that's not all on you? That's a really tricky question. And most of the time, people, there's one person in the family who they want to do that. And and if your loved ones haven't done this planning, they need to do the planning, designate who's going to be the power of attorney and who's also going to manage the estate when, when they're gone. But Generally, there is one person who it points to um, in terms of managing things. It should never be one person's complete financial burden to carry. So if, if let's say we have a situation where they're parents and you've got you know, four siblings, 
you know, find ways that everybody can contribute. But first, as you say, you have to maximize your parents' income and that sort of thing. So you want to be aware of and uh, have a handle on their income, whether it's pensions, retirement funds, um, any benefits they may receive. My dad was a veteran, and so he got veteran aid and attendance benefits, which made a huge difference for us. Uh, But I had to go through the process of applying for them. He didn't know anything about those benefits. Most people don't. Uh, And so finding all all those different types of income to make sure that you're maximizing what they can pay for before family starts pitching in. And that might include long-term care insurance. Sometimes people, I can't tell you how many times people have told me this, that they they had long-term care insurance and they totally, the kids had no idea they had it. Yeah. And if they forgot about it, you know, it's paid automatically, whatever, a huge waste of money. So finding out about that, um, getting all the legal things in place, um, and then, you know, it, there's the practical aspects of managing that money. The bank accounts, how do you access everything? You know, your your retirement or your investment accounts, All what are the legal aspects of? Right. And I, I ran into some things where I thought my power of attorney would do everything and it, it the bank wanted their power of attorney and we had sold a property that was my parents and the the house was in the living trust so the house payment the payment for for the property went in a check living trust and we didn't have a living trust checking account and so we had to open a new account to deposit that check i couldn't deposit it just in my parents account and my mom had had, you know, a stroke. She was very, it was very, very hard for her to write her name. My dad could do it. He didn't, you know, he, he was he, he was okay. His writing was starting to get hard to read, but otherwise. So it, it, we went through, you know, got the lawyers involved, did everything. And in the end, it was, well, they shouldn't do this, but they can. They can require it. So, you know, they came to the house and, you know, it, it took my mom probably an hour to sign all those documents. Mm. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, but you know those are the surprises. Mm-hmm. So really try to talk with your lawyers about any scenarios. Um, one of the things that my dad and mom did was before my dad was not able to do those kinds of things. My mom had aphasia, so she couldn't speak very well. But thankfully, he was still living and and could do the things where we would call up, you know, his insurance, whatever his all the people he was paying money to and say, um, and he would say, my daughter has authorization to deal with my account. Sometimes they would do that just as a phone call. Sometimes there are forms you have to fill out, sometimes both. Um, it, it can get very complicated. And then sometimes you can just set things up online, but then you have to know the passwords and the PIN numbers and all of those things as well. Right. So this, this emphasizes some key points, right? First of all, that before, ideally before you need the care, you've already laid this out somewhere in some documents where you can find all the insurance, where your bank accounts are, even maybe the passwords for things like that to lay that up beforehand, and to get professional legal help for doing all this. And and I assume it was complicated partially in your situation by being in different states, because different states have different laws about Mm -hmm. handling this stuff. Yes, absolutely. And and think about if you're um, if you're so sometimes people get in a situation where the parents are even living in different states they're not divorced but they're living in different states so you you have to be careful about that as well so if you're living in virginia and your parents are in arizona you need a lawyer in arizona managing their things and telling you how what to do there right. mm-hmm. okay so let's say someone's in this situation suddenly often this happens because someone goes into the hospital and then they then have to be taken care of mm-hmm. so just from a triage standpoint what are the first steps someone should take 
when they suddenly become a caregiver? Well, first you have to assess the situation. Um, and you want to assess it in terms of the, you know, what your loved one's needs are, first of all. You know, what is their health condition? You really try to get a good handle on that and understand going forward what's going to happen. So that's where you talk to the doctors, you talk to the social workers, you talk to the nurses and try to understand what their capabilities will be going forward and what kind of rehab they're going to need. What, you know, is, is my dad never going to walk again or is he going to have a hard rehab and that's our goal is to get him walking again, that type of thing. To understand that situation and then in any kind of a, a crisis like that, you have to figure out roles. So what's your role at that point? Are you the person who's got power of attorney so you know kind of this is my role is to take charge and kind of organize everyone? Or has that not been discussed? And so you're one of siblings and then everybody's trying to figure out their roles. So I do think it's really important to figure out clear roles and even if they're temporary, kind of get a clear idea because otherwise you get duplication you get, well, I looked this up and, and this found this. No, I think we should do this. And it doesn't mean that you can't discuss decisions and that sort of thing. I never made a decision without my sister, you know, going, talking it over with me. But I had the ultimate authority to make the decisions just because legally I did. Um, so you want to kind of figure out those roles. And then you've, you've really got to gather all those documents. So as you say, someone has a fall. They're in the hospital. Everything changes. What are we going to do now? If you don't know where where is the power of attorney, this happened with my sister. Um, I you know I knew she had sent me a copy of her power of attorney. I was so focused on caring for my parents, I didn't even look at it. I just knew I had it on my computer. And come to find out, she hadn't signed it. Mm. And so I was able to go to her house and dig through documents and finally found an older version that she had signed, and it still designated me. So it wasn't terribly different. So I was lucky, but. Um, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know where anything else was. And so we had to just search and search through paperwork. And that was a huge stress on top of the the situation. So try and find all those documents, locate everything, Um, you know, go back to your plan. If you've been prepared, you will have some kind of a framework of, you know, if this happens, we'll do this as much as possible. Um, Make sure that you do that. And then, you know, get help. Because especially in a crisis, you're not, you know, you don't, it's kind of like having children. You're not really born knowing how to, how to do these things. So you need to get help. And you're going to talk to uh, the, the hospital social worker or discharge planner is really key. And I always say start talking with the discharge planner like the day after you're admitted. Don't wait until, you know, the very end because you're going to need time to research options, make decisions, maybe find a different living situation or a temporary rehab. So they can do a lot of things, and they generally have lists, and they can connect you with community services, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, the Area Agency on Aging, is every, everywhere in the country has an Area Agency on Aging, and it's part of the um, administration on aging from the, the, at the federal level, goes down, and then there, every state has state unit on aging, and then they divide up the state in these areas. And they're the ones who... Um, who really coordinate home and community-based services. They fund a lot of services. Sometimes they actually provide services. They know the lay of the land. It might be a multi-county area, um, or it might be like in Arizona and Phoenix, it's one, Maricopa County is one area agency on aging. But that, that is a great call to make, um, to find out what's available in your loved one's area. Um, is there, like for example, maybe adult daycare? 
as an option where they can't be home alone all day every anymore and I can't send them home to be home alone, but I can get them out of the hospital and get them home if I know that they're going to adult daycare every day and then we have other things in the evening. So find out what's available. Reach out there. Um, your area agency on aging, by the way, you can find by going to the elder care locator and that's at www.eldercare.acl.gov, G-O-V. Um, and I can repeat those websites later. But those are the kind of the big things. And then, you know, especially in a crisis, we're not prepared. Our, our loved ones aren't prepared, but we're not prepared. So think about what else is going on in your life. Caregiving doesn't happen in a vacuum. So you've got work and you've got your home, and you've got your family, and your pets, and your volunteer work, and your whatever your obligations are. So in that crisis time, somebody's in the hospital, be sure to think of how you're going to deal with that. And 60% of family caregivers are working. So that's a big issue. And, you know, it's good to know if you know that you're moving into these years, just look into what are your options at work. Are there, can, is there any flexibility? Can I telecommute? Um, is there caregiving leave? AARP now offers that for their employees, and it's it's a kind of a trend we're seeing where actually time off, extra time off, just for caregiving for someone else, not your own sick time. Um, so find out what your options are for work. Can someone back you up? All of that sort of thing, and um, and then your home. Yeah, you know who's going to water the plants? Who's going to feed the dog? You know all those right. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the, I assume, especially at the start, the caregiving falls to the person who's basically geographically closest to the person who needs the care. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that people who are not close by can still help out and stay connected? Yes. The long-distance caregiving is a big question. And as I mentioned, the costs are higher for long-distance caregivers. They tend to be. And that's probably because, A, they're spending money on plane tickets or driving or trying, you know, to get to visit. But they're also paying for services they might be providing themselves if they live nearby. So it, there, you could be in a situation like my dad with his parents where he was 2,000 miles away and he was the only child. So that's, that's one way. Um, it could be you're a long-distance caregiver and there are other people who are nearby. And so you still need to find out what you can do. That's not a get home, get out of jail free card. You know, right. there's something that everyone can do. Um, my sister, my oldest sister, before she passed, um, was so ill so much of the time, and she couldn't contribute money. She couldn't come and help. But I asked her to call mom and dad every day, and she did, even when she didn't feel good at all. She called and talked to them, and they loved that, and and it gave us a break, and it helped, you know, help give them a quality of life and um, and she was contributing uh, it might be that there are other things you can do um, finance often the person that lives at a distance does manage finances because that's something that you can do so much everything online now so that might be a role that you can play it might be that you do research online I have a lot of over the years I, I would ask my best friend you know who lived here in the DC area can you look up you know what can I do about this or, or this new diagnosis or, you know and that's helpful if somebody has to do it so even if you're not right there you can do that um, other things you can do um, is when you do make a visit you have to maximize it so when you're you go to your loved one's house you need to assess the situation every time look for red flags um, I, a lot of times what I tell people, they see if there's mail piling up, mom and dad might need some more help. They're not 
quite, they're not able to keep up with it. And that's a good clue that maybe they're not managing their finances because they're not opening the mail. They're not, or they're unpaid bills or double paid bills. Mm-hmm. Pills that, yeah. oh, I, I, I didn't pay that. Oh, yeah, you paid it three times. So, you know, understanding, you know, what that situation is. You got to look for those red flags. Um, is the house being taken care of? Are they, are personal care? That's a big one, actually. When you're not there with the person, it's sometimes hard to know that they're not taking a bath anymore or they haven't changed their clothes in a week or, you know, those little things like that, which are clues to either cognitive changes, depression, um, physical ability. It's too hard to do the laundry. They can't, they have visual problems, can't see, they don't realize their clothes are dirty. So having, you know, checking on those things um, and then, you know, meeting with, with the doctors and the aides and getting, you know, a good handle on things. But do those things when you're there. But some you have to have someone who's your eyes and ears on the ground if you're not there. So if it's not another family member, you can, you know, neighbors sometimes really help out a lot. You know, you're someone from the faith committee, community, a volunteer. They're also geriatric care managers. And they're also sometimes called like aging life specialists or just care managers. And they're people who will kind of play, be you on the ground and um, and have I, when I was early on and in, in with my mom and dad I would come back here I'd be gone for sometimes two weeks at a time so I had someone who knew where everything was if mom or dad had to go to the hospital she could go right away until I could get there and that was like my backup so uh, a lot of people are more and more relying on someone like that as our families are so mobile and, and we aren't there all the time and then the last thing is technology is huge um, it's made a huge difference in, in long-distance caregiving because there's so much you can do now to stay in touch, to monitor medication, um, to keep the house safe and, um, you know, video monitor, just all kinds of things you can do. Yeah, there's some more services that really facilitate the communication in a lot of ways with everyone, like uh, lots of helping hands. Mm-hmm. Um, AARP has an app that does a lot of that. Yeah, there's there's many um, apps. Technology has has made a huge difference in caregiving, really in general, whether you're long distance or not. And you know the apps are great for care coordination, um, Caring Bridge, lots of Helping Hands, Care Zone. There's a, a lot of apps that play different roles. But then also just using apps. I use Evernote a lot, and mm-hmm. I use um, Dropbox, and I use so I use. The apps that I use the most are the ones I use in all the areas of my life. You know, I have a to-do list app I use. I have all of those, and I keep – so, for example, in my Evernote, I have a copy of the Power of Attorney and all the documents because it's quicker for me to access than I have to get my computer and do all that. Right, right. Uh, and so people are finding different ways to incorporate caregiving into you know the apps and things that they're using. But the nice thing about the caregiving apps is it puts it all in one place. And so you can have shared to-do lists and task lists, and you can assign things to people, and um, you can have a shared calendar and keep, really keep track of what, what's going on in the caregiving situation. That's great. Any other final thoughts or final pieces of advice? Oh, my gosh. Well, just, again, thinking about technology, think about safety, too. Some of my favorite things were my dad used to get up out of bed at night to go to the bathroom, and then he'd get lost in the house. So I I got a floor mat that has an alarm. So the minute he puts his feet on it, a little beepy thing would go off, and I had a, a... a audio monitor in there that I could hear in my bedroom so I would know he was up and then I could jump. Then I got a video monitor and, and then I could really tell if he was just, you know, 
rolling over in bed or he was really going to get up and you know so think investigate those things i really i really think you have to embrace technology you know there are people who say my loved one can't live at home anymore because they keep going out the door and getting and i'm afraid they're going to get lost we'll get an alarm on the door it's really not it, they're inexpensive um, there's a lot of different things that you could do and then you know just really reach out and and caregiving can be very isolating so it, it really helps to connect with other caregivers ARP has an online community that you can get in 24 7 whenever it's convenient for you I'm in there a lot and other experts you can post questions and get feedback and that's just at aarp.org slash caregiving community and uh, ARP also has a full family caregiving website. So you're going to find articles on everything we've talked about and more. You're going to, um, I have a column. We have other expert columns, financials, health, you know, caring at home, caring at a facility, all, all kinds of different things. And that's aarp.org slash caregiving. Um, we have a free publication that's a great place to start. It goes over those five basic things that I talked about that you're getting started uh, with your situation and creating your plan, and that's called Prepare to Care. Again, aarp.org slash prepare to care. Or you can call the toll-free number at um, 1-877-333-5885 and request a print copy of that publication. So, and then, of course, I cover all this in my book, Juggling Life, Working, Caregiving, and in great depth, I have checklists and tip sheets and everything practical. I think that's, that's the thing. Keep it practical, um, but look for the joy. And that's kind of my final tip that, for me, that's what got me through. Those joyful moments are what fills your tank and keeps you going. And that's why, you know, I remember why, why I was doing this. So, Looking back now, I know that's what kept me going, and I had to proactively create those moments of joy a lot of times, but also just notice the little things, my mom's smile when I tuck her in bed at night, and, and singing with my dad. I have a lot of videos on my website of just, you know, fun, silly, crazy stuff, and that's what, that's what it's all about, right? Right. It's all about the quality of life. That's great. Amy, thank you so much for coming in and helping us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. some postcards Yay. man 50 million cent that guy gets around he ran um almost ran into rick at cannon beach in oregon nice did you know that no that's pretty cool i know uh well at least he sent a postcard right around this from the same time when you would have been out there so maybe you guys are out there at the same time if he was that guy walking the two dogs out on the sandbar i got a really great picture of him oh we'll send it to him uh and then he also sent us a card from new york city where he ate some good filipino food he just travels constantly. It's so cool. Uh, we also got a card from Dan from the Philly suburbs. He went to Amsterdam, and he said some lovely things in the postcard about us. I'll have to oh, hand it over to you okay. so you can see. Good. And also some guy named Bro went to Hawaii <laughs> and sent a postcard. Did you get the postcard? I did. I did get the Isn't postcard. It's gorgeous? Oh, my god! It's gosh. super gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Yeah. Do you want to tell them? I mean, this is radio, so you should probably explain what was on the card. <laughs> well, it was just... Beautiful mountains and beautiful beaches, and just the best waves ever. I grew up in Florida, where they're really you go to we go to the beach all the time, but the waves are pretty lame. Oh my gosh, the waves were just amazing. Yeah, yeah. And in the background along the mountain range is where they filmed Jurassic Park and Lost, just gorgeous. Yeah, you went and got to see where the Dharma Initiative, yeah. the YMCA camp or whatever. Yeah, it's right? a YMCA. It's a functioning YMCA camp, but normally you have to pay like five dollars to be able to walk around. But we went on a Sunday evening, so we had the place to ourselves. Man, remember how good that show was? Oh my gosh, that 
show was best. The first few seasons, oh best my gosh, TV the ever. The first two seasons were so good. Yeah. You got yourself a fish biscuit. <laughs> I don't know. That's just something Ron and I say to each other even now. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you watch the show. Hey! All right. Summer is winding down, but of course, we'll still accept your postcards. Uh, although we are running out of wall space, I need to figure out another option. Uh, our address is 2000 Duke Street, second floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. All right, that's the show. It is edited Chester Copperpottingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> what? You don't know who Chester Copperpot was? No. Do you not know who Chester Copperpot was? And you say you're a fan of Goonies. I only just watched it for the first time in like 40 years, so... You know, it's not like I knew the movie well. All right. Well, some listeners, some listeners know what I'm talking about, and that was for them. <laughs> All right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.